At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Good morning. We are in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. So good to see all of you here today. Uh, continue to be so excited about our Roman study. As you're going to Romans 6, let me just encourage you, you know, with the summer behind us as fall is underway, I want to encourage you to take your next step in your walk and devotion to Christ. So whatever that may be for you, maybe for you, um, you've been coming to this church, but you have not become a member yet. And so I would encourage you to do that. Or maybe you've never served in any of the ministries of the church. We need you. We have great needs uh, for service, but also you need... Um, to be able to serve. That will do you good. It'll help you mature in your walk with Christ. And so uh, take that step. Or maybe you're not part of a live group. For us, live groups are so important because they allow us to give expression to our faith in the context of other believers. And so, and maybe you are in a live group, but maybe for you, the next step is to go deeper in your relationships with the people there. Give yourself more. Allow yourself to be known. Get to know others. But whatever that may be, let me just encourage you, you know, to, to really uh, take to heart your walk with Christ in the expression of the church because our devotion to Christ and to his church are of a peace. Okay? Romans 6, let's pray. Heavenly Father, one of my fears as a follower of Jesus Christ is that I will minimize the cross that familiarity will render it powerless, that I'll miss the ocean that is the death of Jesus for the puddle of what I am able to see and feel and know. So I ask you to use this text of Scripture today to enlarge for all of us the power, the wisdom, the glory of the cross. It's been such an honor to sing to you already this morning, but we know you have more for us. So Father, by your Spirit, I pray that as we gladly open this text of Scripture, that you would open our minds and hearts, that we may behold more of the Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Romans 6, verse 1, the apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The word of the Lord. 
The story of Joseph is one of the greatest and longest narratives in Genesis. Joseph was the youngest of Jacob's sons uh, out of 12. Uh, He was the only son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. And I want to draw an inference from the early part of his story. Joseph was a dreamer, an ambitious young man who lacked good sense. Um, he, He often provoked his brothers by his many dreams of domination over them. And uh, and now the dreams were from God, but God didn't tell him to share them. You know, there are some things that you need to just keep to yourself, right, between you and God. And his father Jacob didn't help either. You know, Jacob favored Joseph. You know, he made him this beautiful robe of many colors. I guess that the rest of Jacob's children just got monochrome dollar store robes, you know. And so, well, in the course of time, Joseph's brothers decide, you know, they come up with a plan to get rid of him. And so at first they want to kill him. The two of the older um, brothers intervened and prevailed and convinced their, the rest of the brothers to not kill him, but to sell him to a caravan of traders that were on their way to Egypt. You know, slavery was preferable over death. And so that's what they do. They sell him, and then they take his robe of many colors, and they dip it in the blood of this goat, and they take that to Jacob, and they say, this we found. Eh, please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. And Jacob looks at it and says, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob goes into this long season of depression and bereavement over the loss of his son. He refused to be comforted. His family tried to comfort him, but he says, no, I will go to Sheol to my son mourning. And he wept and wept. Now, you and I know what Jacob's sons knew, that Joseph was alive. Joseph was alive. Jacob was convinced that Joseph was dead, and his actions matched his beliefs. Many tears, depression, refusal to be comforted. He says he's not going to feel better. He says, I'm going to go down to my death, mourning the death of my son, who was not dead. You see, what Jacob was experiencing matched his beliefs, but it didn't match reality. Jacob lacked truth. And Christians can live with the same kind of experience where we can live in this state that does not match our reality with Christ. So we can worry, we can be gripped by fear, we can um, let anger get the best of us, give in to our various lusts and appetites. We can become defensive, you know, accusatory, retaliatory. We can crave more of everything or anything. But none of those things matches our reality, our identity in Christ. So fundamentally, we're living in untruth. And the text today is going to unveil for us reality. It's going to help us see the dissonance between our walk and our baptism and press on us the truth that our walk must match our baptism. Our lives, our walk must match our baptism. Jacob was deceived. And so he had all these feelings that he shouldn't have had because Joseph was fine. I mean, ish, you know, he was alive, you know, different different fate, but he was still alive. But you see, Jacob saw this pseudo evidence of the robe and it just sent him down the wrong path. And we too can be deceived. What is the 
the robe of many colors in your life, the pseudo evidence that sends you down the wrong path, where your walk, what you believe, feel, will, and do, does not match your baptism in Christ. What is that? Our walk must match our baptism. And for that to be the case, we need to know what happened in baptism. So what happened in our baptism? We died to sin. Look at Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, now remember that at the end of chapter 5, Paul had made this statement that could be easily misunderstood. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, he was talking about the giving of the law, how the law had come to increase the trespass, that is, to increase our awareness of sin, but also our doing of sin. Hang tight for the argument on that from chapter 7 in coming weeks. You see, what he was saying is that the law was given to show how powerful sin is, how powerless humanity and Adam was to conquer it, so that at at just the right time, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, would come and introduce the principle of grace and show that grace is twice as abundant, doubly more powerful than sin. But where many people might and do take that kind of statement is in this direction. Now think of the story of the prodigal son from Luke 15. We know that story well. This ungrateful son takes the family's money, runs with it, spends it in wild living, and ends up bankrupt financially, morally, relationally. In that state, he finally comes to his senses and decides to journey back home. And when he's on his way home, his father sees him from a long distance off and he runs toward him and embraces him and kisses him and and hugs him and covers him with the finest of robes and he throws a big bash. Now, one commentator says, imagine if many um, years later, life has returned to normal as life always does and the son begins to think again, hmm, I've, I have some savings now, and I miss my wild living, and I know how Father will respond uh, when and if I run out of money and I've had enough. It's not hard to find people who reason this way about God. In fact, that kind of view of God is deeply entrenched in the West, You know, in our secular context, if there's one thing that people still believe about God is that God forgives and must forgive. You travel out east, people don't think the same thing about God. But here in the west, we do. You know, if God is a God of grace, then let's let's sin some more that he may show more grace. And Paul says, absolutely not. That's what he says in verse 2, by no means. This is one of Paul's strongest ways of negating something. He says, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Paul emphatically denies this misguided premise and introduces the premise he's going to prove in the form of a question. How can we who die to sin still live in it? We died to sin. Now, imagine if, if you were drowning out in the ocean, and someone threw you a a flotation device, would you with one hand hold on to the device and with the other start sinking your head under the water? Thank you for the floating. I'm just going to drown myself here a little bit. Like, no, right? We would not do that. You see, I want you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to allow the Spirit of God to apply the question in verse 2, to your life right now. How could you who died to sin still live in it? 
So think of an area of sin in your life that you know clearly this is wrong, but you're still living in it. Deep hatred, racism, overindulgence, disobedience to parents, fearfulness, greed, stinginess, fits of rage, ingratitude, smutty entertainment, vices of all kinds, impatience, lack of love. How do we overcome these things? Paul helps us here by saying you need to look back to your baptism. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen, Paul assumes that Christians have been baptized, that the Christians in Rome that he's writing to have been baptized. He's never been to that church, but he knows that wherever the gospel of Christ is preached, baptism is preached. So he assumes that this has happened to all of them. He knows that this is the conversion rite, the initiation rite that shows that someone is not in Adam anymore, that now they are in Christ. They belong to Christ. From the time that Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus to the day when Paul was baptized, it was three days. From the time that Jesus called me to follow him to the time I was baptized, it was six days, twice as long as Paul. Hey, he's an apostle. Now, in the church, there are many unicorns. When things between Anne and I were getting serious, and they did quickly, I started dreaming of building my life with her. You know, what it would look like for us to share the same bank account and same kitchen and same bedroom. What it would feel like, you know, to make my home with her instead of only seeing her just a couple of times a week. What it would sound like for her to go from Anna Leatherwood to Anna Morales. Now, I knew that before any of those things could happen, that I needed to put a ring on her finger. I knew this. I knew that that one act would mark the beginning of everything else that I wanted to do with her. Baptism is the ring on of the marriage, your marriage to Christ. Baptism is the very first thing, the very first thing that someone does the moment that faith in Christ is born in them. The moment that someone goes, I love Christ. I know that the rest of my life belongs with him. They're going into the waters of baptism. So I say that there are many unicorns in the church because there are people who say, I love Christ. The rest of my life belongs with him. But it's been weeks, months, even years, and they've never been baptized. Paul would look at you confused and say, what do you mean you haven't been baptized? Without baptism, your conversion is not complete. And so what happens to us in baptism? Look at what he says. We are baptized into Jesus Christ's death. He says in verse 3, we're baptized into his death. Jesus' death itself was a baptism. He'd already been baptized in water, but in Luke 12, then he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He knew that he was going to be inundated, flooded with the waters of God's judgment. Our baptism takes us 
into Christ's baptism, into his death. That's what our baptism does. The preposition into, because he says we're baptized into Christ. That preposition, into, is important. It refers to the the spatial reality, the, the sphere, the realm of life with Christ. You know, when we say, you know, uh, I'm going into the airport, what do we mean? Well, we mean that we're entering into the realm of the airport. You know, three, three seconds before, we were outside, and there were cars, and it was loud and warm weather and natural lighting, but then we step into the realm of the airport, and everything changes, right? There are, lighting is artificial, shiny floors, um, no cars, all these different things, AC and so forth. When we are baptized, we're stepping into, into the realm of Christ, into his kingdom. But the specific part of his realm that we're baptized into is his death. And that's important because his death was for sin. And in our bap- baptism, we're dying to sin. We're dying to sin. Look at verse 4. We were buried Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he says we were, so we were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death. Have you ever attended a funeral and a burial? They make death, the reality of that death, feel final. Right? Especially if you, if you knew the person as, 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 the, as the body is going under and, and you're just starting to think about the finality of what has happened. That's why baptism is so powerful because now your whole body is experiencing the sensations of what's happening to you spiritually. You see, Jesus Christ died he was buried and he rose again. And all of those things happened to him in his body. And we experience his death, his burial, his resurrection through baptism. And we experience those things in our body. Baptism is a gift. It's a gift from God that allows us to to experience in a physical way what's happening to us spiritually because we are both matter and spirit. We are body and spirit. Also the reason he gave us the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper and baptism are two sacraments that God, that Christ gave to us to allow us in our bodies to experience what he's doing in us spiritually. It's a wonderful gift. In baptism, we say, I am dead to sin. As surely as Jesus died for my sins, I count myself dead to sin. And so what happened in our baptism is that we died to sin in order that we may also rise to new life. And so what happened in our baptism, we rose to new life. I like how verse 4 puts the matter. Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we were buried with him um, into death by baptism. And the parallel here is between Christ rising and our walking in newness of life. Now notice that Paul could have said this. He could have said, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, 
we too might be raised from the dead. You could have said that. That is true. It's more or less what he says in verse 5, but it's not what he says in verse 4. In verse 4, what he says is, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. The parallel is between Christ rising and us walking in newness of life. Our walk must match our baptism. To be a Christian is to take part in the death and burial of Jesus Christ through faith and baptism so that we may also take part in the new life that is only possible by his resurrection. Look at verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the way we participate in the resurrection life that Christ brings, that's the whole reason for his coming to earth, was so that he could usher in the new age to come. And that age is gonna come in all its finality, no sin, no death, no evil, but until then, he has ushered it in. He's inaugurated it at his resurrection with his coming. And so now for us to take part in that resurrection that is coming, that will be full for all of us and bodily, we must partake in his death. We must be united with him in his death. Now, that language of union with Christ is one of the most important theological categories that you can understand. This is so important. Remember last week, last week we said that Adam's trespass in the Garden of Eden fundamentally changed the nature of humanity for everyone that has come after him. For everyone, no one is born sinless. Everyone is born sinful. That's what's happened from what Adam did. But with Christ and with his one act of righteousness and what he has done for those who are in him, who have faith in him, then what is true of him is true of us. This is wonderful. You're either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, sin reigns and death reigns. In Christ, grace reigns and we Christians reign in life with him. And so in Adam, we're guilty for our sin. In Christ, the penalty for our sin has been paid. They're your sins, they're our sins, but Christ paid them. That's what we heard last week from Colossians. God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, the record of debt that stood against you is canceled. It's gone. How? Because Jesus paid it on your behalf. And by faith, you're united with him. In Adam, death reigns. In Christ, death no longer has any dominion over you. How could that be? Well, because Christ, by his death, disarmed death. And you are united to him. What is true of him is true of you. In Adam, we are enslaved to sin, unable to break free from it. In Christ, death no longer, or sin no longer has any hold on us. We have newness of life. Newness of life. Why is that? Because Christ was uh, raised from the dead and therefore we are able to have newness of life because we are united with him. But that's why we must go through baptism with him. 
Paul is convinced that when we are united with Christ in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Our resurrection is still future. It hasn't happened yet. But what we have now is the power of Christ's resurrection empowering our lives now. Christ is blowing life blowing life into us. And by that very breath, he's pulling us, so to speak, into the age to come. Wonderful. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Listen, our old self, he starts talking about our old self. That refers to our humanity in Adam, fallen, morally weak, unable to love God, enslaved to sin. And what he's saying is that your old self has been crucified. Think about that word, crucified. You have gone to the cross with Christ. Your old self could not survive the six hours of agony that Jesus endured the cross until he could not breathe any longer. The cross proved more powerful than your old self. And the reason your old self must be crucified and was crucified was, he says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, destroyed. Now, the body of sin doesn't refer to our physical body as if we were, our matter, right, our body was inherently evil. That's not what it means. What it means, rather, is that our body becomes the vehicle of sin. Because if you think about it, our body is how we connect to the larger world. And so it's through our bodies that we worry with our brains and we steal with our hands and we show contempt for others with our faces and lust with our eyes and break our marriage covenant with our sexual organs. You see, so it's the, it's the, it's the body in service to sin that must be destroyed. That's what must go through destruction. The sermon next week is all about this because Paul is going to break this down even more. And it's super practical, super helpful to us in overcoming sin because he says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you feel like you're still enslaved to sin? There are some things you're not getting. You're not understanding if you are in Christ. So be sure to come back next week. But please... uh, Absorb, digest what these passages are telling us because you want to make sure that what you're living is matching the reality that is true about you in Christ. Sometimes there's a complete dissonance. And then in verse 7, Paul says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. This verse functions almost like a proverb. I guess if we could be so crass, we could say that one good thing about death is that dead people don't sin. Right? Hitler, once he was dead, he wasn't sinning anymore. He wasn't doing horrible things, right? And you sometimes hear people say that. It's like, oh, man, at least when, you know, I'm dead, I will not do X or whatever. They're just so overcome almost by their sin and feel so trapped in it. That's what verse 7 is saying. One who has died has been set free 
from sin. And that's the great news of the gospel. Because your union, listen to this, your union with Jesus Christ in his death has freed you from sin before you die. Before you die. How is that possible? Because his death counts as your death. Listen, your old self drowned in baptism. And so now your walk must match that baptism. And so as we put all this together that Paul is teaching us today, that scripture is teaching us today, we need to ask the obvious question. Have you been baptized? Have you been water baptized into Christ? Not as a baby, when you had no idea, no understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that you were entering into? Have you been baptized as a follower of Messiah, Jesus? You know, there are a lot, many people who have not been baptized, perhaps because when we go into the waters of baptism, we know that there is a clean break with sin that the Lordship of Christ demands. There's something definitive about baptism, final, like a funeral, like a burial, that people living in the shadows avoid. Christians, without water baptism, it's a, it's a unicorn. For Paul, in the New Testament, conversion included a number of events such as faith, repentance, the giving of the Spirit of God, and water baptism. But there are New Testament writers could talk about conversion by any of those events and assume the rest because they all happened as a complex. They all happened um, in close proximity, many times on the same day. Jesus went to the cross for you. If you can't go into the waters of baptism for him, you are not ready to follow him. And so are you in Adam or in Christ? And if you are in Christ, have you been baptized? What are you waiting for? Get in touch with us and experience the glory of Christian baptism. And if you've been baptized, then does your walk match your baptism? Are you dead to sin? To be dead to sin doesn't mean that our desire for sin is gone completely. That's not what it means. What it means is that sin no longer rules us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has done something in us. He has done something in us so that we're no longer under the jurisdiction of sin. In Adam, sin reigns. Death reigns. In Christ, grace reigns. And we Christians reign in life with him. See, this is why our lives often are only new-ish. Because we don't see sin as something, or rather we see sin as something we should avoid. Instead of seeing sin as something Jesus defeated on our behalf. And the difference is radical. When people see sin as something they should avoid, they start kind of like relating to sin the way that some people relate to sugar. I mean, how do sugar-sensible people approach it. I mean, you know, you've seen this so many times, right? You, you've heard yourself, you've heard your friends, right? Well, they'll say things like, I need to, I really need to avoid sugar. I, I really like it. I wish it could still be a part of my life, but I know it's not good for me, at least not in excess. And they go through life in this love-hate relationship with sugar. 
That's how many people approach sin. Ooh, I should avoid it. It's not good for me. Uh, That's religion. That's not the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus, by his death, canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. He nailed it to the cross. Sin can make no demand on you. None. Sin, as a Christian, sin may accost you, lure you, nag at you, wear you down, but sin has no power over you unless you entertain it flirt with it, open the door for it to make its way in your life all over again. Let me ask you something. After you graduated high school, did you ever go back? Did you ever put the uniform again? Maybe when you were 23 or 45 years old and went back and sat in Mrs. Holland's English class again? Did you ever go back and take Algebra 1 again? Did you get dressed for and attend homecoming and prom again? It sounds like, it gives you chills, right? Just to think of something so ghastly, right? Like, why would you do that, you know? And in high school, it's not even evil. I know some of you would debate me on that, but why? That's what we're doing when we go back into sin. When we go back into sin, having come to know Christ, knowing that we're dead to sin and living in it again. What would you think of a man who gets married but continues to spend the night at his buddy's apartment, go on dating apps, and make weekend plans without his wife? Legally, he is married, but his life does not match, does not match his marital status. That's what we're doing when we go back into sin. We're living in untruth. Our walk doesn't match our profession of faith. And so remember Jacob. Remember Jacob. Jacob was convinced that his son Joseph was dead. And he wept and he was so depressed. He refused to be comforted because he was convinced that Joseph was dead. Except that Joseph was alive. He was very much alive. But Jacob saw the dipped-in-blood robe, and he went, it is my son's robe. A ferocious animal has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Without doubt? Without doubt, he's torn to pieces? Joseph was so alive. Yes, sold as a slave, but on his way to becoming prime minister of Egypt. He was very much alive. But you see, Jacob was sent down the wrong path by the pseudo-evidence of the robe dipped in blood. He was deceived. Now, we also have all kinds of things that deceive us. All kinds of pseudo-evidence that send us down the wrong path where our walk does not match our baptism. What kind of evidence? Oh, we may think, you know, my life has been so hard. I sin because I've been so hurt. Listen, you're not a victim. You don't have to sin. Jesus conquered the grave. He conquered sin on your behalf, and he will give you. He has given you a new identity. The people have hurt you. They don't own you. Don't give them that kind of power. You can own your walk with Christ. Why would we, 
who have died to sin still live in it. Or maybe you say, you know what? I've given into this sin for so long that it's stronger than Christ in me. Well, maybe you have weakened yourself so much, but you don't have to give in to sin. You are dead to sin. Maybe you allowed sin to seat at your table so that you feel like you're on spiritual life support. But as surely as Jesus' back was flayed open, he will strengthen you. He will heal you from all the corruption of sin. Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Or maybe you say, well, I deserve this pleasure. I've been waiting on God for so long, and he's not answered me. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Sin presents itself to you shiny, attractive, luscious, but it's a banquet in the grave. Do not live as if Christ was still in the grave and had never risen. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness, newness of life. Maybe you say, well, what's the difference? What difference does it make whether I watch this, whether I eat this, whether I buy this, whether I crave this? Everybody does it. Holiness matters. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without newness of life, you have no evidence that you are united to Christ. Without newness of life, you're still an Adam. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And if we're united with him, we will have, we will walk in newness of life. You know, his baptism was one of the ways that Martin Luther fought temptation. When he was tempted with sin, he would just say to himself, I have been baptized. I have been baptized. You need to remember that. You need to go back to your own baptism and remember, I'm dead to sin because I went through death with Christ. I'm a new creature. creature. I'm a new creation. I walk in newness of life. Are you an Adam? Or in Christ? Have you been baptized? If not, what are you waiting for? If so, our walk must match our baptism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this text, this glorious text of scripture that unveils for us the dissonance between our walk and our baptism. Father, I pray for those who are here who are far from you, who maybe they just came in here today because you, you brought them. But they do not understand Christ. They do not understand you. Father, I pray for them that you would draw them to yourself, that they would continue learning and coming. They may have hope that they can be different, that they can be transformed by your power. Father, I pray for those who do follow Christ but have never been baptized. Father, I pray that uh, there would be no shame, that they would simply come and do that, that they would know that their conversion is not complete without baptism. And I pray that they would humble themselves before you, 
and enter into the realm of life with Christ. This life that we enter by faith, by repentance. This life that we enter as you give us your Holy Spirit as we go into the waters of baptism. And Father, I pray for those of us who have been baptized. Father, let our walk, may our walk match our baptism. May we live in a life, uh, in a way that is worthy of the gospel we've received. Thank you, O God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our union with him. That in him we are made new. That what is true of him is true of us. This is mind-blowing. That his death counts for ours. That his righteousness counts for ours. That his life, his indestructible life, is being given to us. As he blows the breath of the new world into us by his spirit. We love you. We trust you. We ask you to transform us. That we would not just be newish. That we would walk in newness of life. Forgive us our sin. How could we who died to sin still live in it? We don't want to, Lord. It grieves us that we sin against you. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to the renewal that comes through the blood of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.